If you're joining us online, we are glad you are here. Um, also, we're going to be celebrating communion, so if you want to get elements to do that, that you can do that and join us, that would be great. So, some of you may or may not watch or follow, I don't watch it, but I we'll see little clips of mixed martial arts. And there's two guys, there's kind of no rules in the ring, and, and there's a multiple ways to win, but sometimes they get them in a hold where they're pressuring a joint or a, a bone or something, and the person can tap out. When they tap out, it's done. Or the, the pressure's off, but, but you've lost. Well, there's a sense, in that sense, there's a pressure for followers of Jesus to, to tap out. There's a pressure. You, you may lose the ability to, to participate economically. You could even lose your life. And if you just tap out by denying Jesus, then we're, we're good. We're over. It's, it's done. So why on earth then would we suffer and even die rather than deny Jesus? I want us to think about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Revelation chapter 20, we'll go through this, that chapter with this with this question in mind, why die? Why suffer rather than deny Jesus? So if you haven't been with us, oh, we spent the last three or four months going through the book of Revelation. Let me give you this quick overview. Chapters 1, 1 through 8 kind of sets the, the genre or the, the, the tone of the book. Verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God says, John, I'm going to give you an apocalypse, a revelation. So I'm going to communicate through symbols. Think about a political commentator who uses a political cartoon. Those symbols are communicating a message. But this isn't a message where we're going to try and crack the code and figure it out and speculate. No, this is a prophetic word. Chapter 1, verse 4 uses that word prophecy. When we finish in chapter 22, it'll use the word prophecy four times. Prophecy, there's some foretelling, but more than not, there's instruction on how to live. And this is instruction for seven churches we're being pressured to tap out, if you will. Um, they're living in the Roman Empire about 95 AD. Uh, the Roman Emperor Domitian has started to demand to be worshipped as God. And in fact, in those seven cities, in six cities, the Roman Empire has built a temple to facilitate emperor worship. Five, there's a subsidized priesthood to encourage people in worshipping the emperor. But this is also a letter. John is shepherding these seven churches, albeit from a distance. He's already suffered for his faith. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, the closest church is Ephesus. is about 50 miles away. They're all in what would be modern-day Turkey. Um, and he's shepherding them, walking them through this. So chapter, the rest of chapter 1 through chapter 3 is uh, an evaluation of the, the seven churches, what's going well and what needs to change. Chapters 4 and 5, then, in the vision, John is in heaven, and in heaven, everything's in order. On earth, not so much. And we get God's plan in the form of a scroll to bring heaven to earth, but this scroll has a seal on it, and you have to have the authority to break the seal, and there's no one with the authority to do it. And John begins to weep until he hears about the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, militaristic terms for sure, but then he looks and he sees the slain lamb. And the message is... Like Jesus, we conquer our enemies by dying for them. And those seven seals set up a, a series of three judgments, seven each. We get the seal judgments first. Those are in verses 6 through 8. And there seems to be a chronology to them until they bring us right to the end. But the seventh seal introduces the next set of judgments, which are the trumpets. We hear about those in chapters 8 through 11. 
And then the seventh one introduces the third set of judgments, the, the bowl judgments. But before that, chapters 12 through 14, we, we kind of step back and get a look at what is really going on. That there's a, a spiritual battle behind this seeming physical conflict. That behind the nation state is Satan himself, introduced in the for, as a form of a dragon in chapter 12. And he's got two lieutenants, and this is at the, the end, this, this, this escalates. There's an antichrist, two beasts, one's an antichrist and one serves him. And, and, and they're, they're putting pressure on him. And people are losing their lives and, and they're losing the, those that keep their lives or lose the ability to participate economically if you won't give allegiance as God. Then chapters 15 and 16 give us the, seventh, uh, the third set of seven judgments, the bold judgments, and that brings us to the end. God is going to bring his kingdom in. Chapter 17 and 18, God begins to dismantle uh, anything that would stand in his way, and that's the nation state, uh, archetyped in Babylon, could be Rome, and it just shows God is going to deconstruct to take these apart. That's what he does in chapter 17 and 18. Chapters 19 and 20 then is the final battle. Evil against God. They marshal their forces. And we looked at chapter 19 last week. And we're going to see the second part of that here in chapter 20. So that's where we are. Here's what it says, chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from the heaven holding the key of the abyss. The abyss is the holding tank and a great chain in his hand. So he's got a key, and the question is, what's he going to do with the key? He's going to open it, but what's the purpose of opening? He's going to let somebody out? He's going to put somebody in? Well, we find out in chapter verse 2. And he laid hold of the dragon. Remember, we, the dragon was introduced in chapter 12, clearly representing Satan. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he would, now, he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed after these things, he must be released for a short time. A couple things I want to point out here. Maybe they're obvious. God has ultimate authority over Satan. Okay? So yeah, he's at work in our world. But, but God, he doesn't act without God's authority. And what he does primarily is deceive. And we've talked about Revelation. There is intimidation and deception to get you and me to renounce our faith, our belief in Jesus. And we've seen, and we will see, there are people who lose their life. And hey, that was happening in the first century, and it goes on today in our world. We in the West have been spared that, by and large. But we live in a world of deception. And you know, if you and I go through this book of Revelation, and we don't step back and ask ourselves, where are we being deceived? We've missed the point. Look, if I go to an art, I don't know anything about art show, and I go, and this guy says, this is a Van Gogh, and he charges me hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I don't know anything, and I get home, and somebody says, it's a forgery. What's happened? I've been deceived, right? And what I thought was a value is not. That kind of deception is going on in our world. How? If you get the right job, if you drive the right car, if you get the right look, if you get down to a certain size, if you get the right friends, if you get, then you will be fulfilled. That's deception. Fulfillment's ultimately in God. And so we put ourselves into our job, into that car, into that friendship, into that, into that whatever, and we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, if you will, and we, and we don't get that kind of value. Where are you and where am I being deceived? For me, it's 
people's opinion. If people think highly enough of me, I'll be satisfied. Well, no, no, that's, no, satisfaction ultimately comes in Jesus. But for a thousand years, the deceiver is going to be locked up. So what's this setting up? Well, here it's setting up verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Well, who is them? Well, here we find out. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those who gave their life for the gospel are going to be rewarded in this thousand-year reign. They're going to rule with Jesus. Why is this message being given? Well, let's think about our original audience. Seven churches, no power, no influence. And the Roman government has said, you do this or else. Why would they not capitulate? Because they believe there is a reward for those who remain faithful to Jesus. And by the way, that is going on in our world today. People are losing their lives rather than give their testimony. Look, if you and I decide we're going to save to, I don't know, we're going to buy a car, we're going to save to buy a house, that means we're going to forego something right now, aren't we? We're not going to go out to eat as much. We're going to do a lesser vacation. We're not going to buy as nice of clothes. What do we do? We're foregoing something because we're saving for something that we think is better. Well, that's what God's calling us to do. These people are letting go of life. They're, they're 40, and they might live to 80, but apparently those 40 years are going to be taken from them. Why would they give that up? Because they think there's something better on the other one. They believe with all their heart that God rewards the faithful. See, we're asking this question, why? Why suffer? Why even die rather than deny Jesus? The certainty of Christ's reward of the faithful. Why would you do that? The certainty. You're absolutely convinced that God is good to his word, that he's going to reward those who are faithful. Look, I don't want us to miss the point. We're going to take a little bit of a digression here to talk about this thousand-year reign because it's been a little bit of a ha in the last couple thousand years in the church, but let's not miss the point. There are seven churches who are under it, and God's saying remain faithful. There's reward, and, and that principle holds and is held for the last 2,000 years. That being said, this thousand-year reign is referred to as the millennium, and throughout church history, there have been different positions. I'm going to give three positions, and there's nuances of it, but this captures the three. The first is the, the premillennial position, and this says pre means before, that Jesus is coming back before the thousand-year rule. For the first 350, 400 years in the church, premillennial held. What happened over time is people began to read in sensual and physical pleasures and material pleasures, and so Augustine of Hippo comes along, and he develops a theology called amillennial. 
position. That means it's talking about a heavenly reign of God. There's no earthly reign that takes place. The thousand years are used symbolically. And we have seen a thousand used symbolically in other places in Revelation. Talked about 144,000 in heaven. We don't take those numbers literally. We say those are numbers of completion. Twelve tribes, twelve disciples, a thousand is the number of completion. Well, they're saying thousand here is being used symbolically and is being used to describe that time from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. So there is no earthly reign. It's a heavenly reign, and, and this was the dominant view from Augustine through the Reformers, probably 1,200 years in the church. About that time after the Reformation, you see pre-millennial, pre-mill come back, and then you also see, at some point, post-millennial develop, and post-millennial says Jesus comes after the thousand-year reign, and the church is the one that brings in the thousand-year reign because they're so effective at evangelism and discipleship, they bring in this golden age. And this really fueled the modern missions movement, which happened in the late 1700s through the early 1900s. And the view held until the mid-1900s when two world wars within 25 years kind of shot the notion that we're bringing in a golden age. And so that's where we stand. Now, historically, the Berean Fellowship of Churches has said a person has to be pre-millennial in their position to be a church member. They've nuanced that, they've changed that, and they've said, you know, there are 10 verses on the millennial millennium in the whole Bible. We ain't going to fight over that. We're not going to discriminate over that. So when I interviewed, they asked me, what do you think of the Brian statement of faith? I said, I'm good with it. Just know on point 10, which was the end times, I said, if a person comes and will affirm the literal physical return of Jesus, which we're going to talk about in the next two messages, I'm good. I'm not going to ask them about their position on the tribulation, and I'm not going to ask them about their position on the millennium. This is divided the church at times, and I think it's foolish that 10 verses that are non-essentials would divide us. So it's not in our statement of faith. All we're going to affirm that Jesus is coming back literally and physically to set up his kingdom on earth, and we'll talk about that in the last two sermons. In seminary, I had to write a paper. Dr. Simon, in the last one I had to write on was eschatology, which is end times, and they made us take a position on the tribulation and the millennium, so I took a my, my best guess is pre-trip. You say to me, are you sure about that? Nope, <laughs> I'm not. It's very tentative. That being said, I'm going to move on from these positions and go back to what are we talking about that's going on here. God is rewarding the faithful. Chapter, uh, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So when we die, we're in various places, depending on where we are with Jesus, waiting for his return. Those that have given their life, they get raised to life a thousand years earlier to reign with him. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So there is a reward for those who remain faithful to Jesus to the point of giving their life. 
Well, what happens when the thousand years is over? Well, thank you for asking. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. You think, what in the world? Why do, why do we have this millennial reign? And I don't know the mind of God. But one thing I want to tell you is Satan doesn't change. He's had a thousand years to think about this. He's had a thousand years to see he ain't in control, but he's so angry at God and he wants to take people with him, he doesn't change. And guess what he does in verse 8? Come out to it. And will come out to deceive the nations. Now look, there's been people in the earth for a thousand years. No saying. But, but when he comes out in deception, they take it hook, line, and sinker. Don't think we're not vulnerable, that we can't be deceived. There's a word of caution in this for us. We'll come out and deceive the nations where the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, that's the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, they were um, opponents of the nation of Israel. Here they stand for all those who are opponents of God. They're going to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. You won't be able to count the number of people who have fallen for the deception. Let's not be deceived. It, it is, looks good. It seems real. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. So they're coming after God's people. And the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Like that, it's done. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, we saw that in chapter 19, and they will be tormented, tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan isn't thrown in there to rule. He's thrown in there to be punished. You ask, is the lake of fire metaphorical? I think so. Because other times uh, hell is described as outer darkness. But it is pictured as a place we don't want to be. It's the complete absence of God. But these people are choosing to live apart from God. And God's saying, okay, your will be done. But it's not a place you want to be. Um, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and whom, him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. When, when God comes back to set up judgment, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. It's a frightening thing and people flee to get away, but there's no place to go. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before them and the, the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So we got believers and non-believers and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. You say, well, is, is judgment by works? No, but our deeds show the validity of our faith. Salvation is by grace through faith, but the reality of our faith plays out in our actions. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave them up, the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So even those who die at sea are given up. They thought they were lost forever. No, they will stand before God one more time. Death, death and Hades, the, the, the ultimate end of sin. We're thrown into the lake of fire. We're, we're done with the effects of sin. This is the second death in the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, we started, we were asking this question, why on earth would I deny Jesus? Would I die rather than deny Jesus? Why would I suffer Rather than deny Jesus, why would I refuse to tap out? Well, we've seen the certainty that God will reward the faithful and the equal certainty that he will judge the wicked. Certainty that God will reward the faithful and a certainty that he will judge the wicked. 
you know, you, you, we talk and, man, Revelation's got a lot of judgment. Why? Well, again, imagine you're a doctor, I'm a doctor, and you come to see me, and, and you're in a, a good mood, and, and, you know, and I'm doing the physical, and I see something that, man, is, this, is a, this is a pretty strong symptom of cancer. But I think, you know, you're having a good day, and I just don't, I don't want to wreck your day, so I say nothing. What kind of doctor would I be? Negligent. I could be sued for negligence, for not saying. Look, if, if God just wanted to judge people, he'd just do it. Bang! But he talks about it that we might avoid it. But I want to tell you, this judgment is coming. And perhaps it's a frightening thing, but it doesn't have to be. So when I was a sophomore in college, chemical engineering manager, and I have a class called Statics and Dynamics. And I get near the end of the semester, and I don't know what I had, maybe a 86 or 87, I don't know. But I run the numbers, and I think it's just impossible that I can get an A in here. Like I'd need a 98 on the final. There's just no way. And, and the way the class worked, there were four tests, and there were four problems each in the test. And then after the, uh, the test, they'd give us a solution set, and they say, you hang on to this because you're going to need this for your final. Okay. And again, solutions that these problems would take about three or four pages. So step it through. So you're probably talking about 15 pages each test of, to, to give the solution to the four problems. Okay, I'll hang on to them because I'm just a, a diligent little fellow. Well, we get, I've run the numbers, and we get to dead week, which is the week before finals, and we get the terms of the final. And the professor says, I'm going to pick four problems from your four tests. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've got a solution for every one of those problems. And I think, this is just too good to be true. So one student raises his hand and he said, can I clarify, are you going to take problems directly from the tests we took? And she says, what more can I say? And the rest of us think, say no more. Say no more. All of a sudden, which what I thought was impossible is now possible. I had four finals. I had one on Monday, two on Tuesday, and I had this one on Friday. So at Tuesday at one, I'm done with everything, and I've got 48 hours or 60 hours or however you count it to work the, with the solution set in front of me to work these problems over and over again, and voila, I got my A. I didn't understand the terms. You need to understand the terms of this judgment. You can pass. Well, Andy, you don't realize how bad I've been. You're right, I don't, but you don't realize how bad I've been. This is not about you. It is about Jesus. And in Jesus, you can be forgiven. We're justified. Somebody says it's just as if we've never sinned. God sees you as holy and clean. I, I remember when I was a kid, I had this friend uh, and they were very wealthy, and he took me to this club, and they treated all the patrons well, and, and they, they were treating me like I was from money. I wasn't, but they thought I was with their family, so I was, well, in the same way, God sees us in Jesus. The great white throne judgment, it is coming. But if you've never trusted Jesus, do it now. But if we get through the book of Revelation and it doesn't lead you to come to faith, you missed the point. There is a judgment coming. But you can pass with flying colors.
if you believe in Jesus. If you never trusted him, I invite you to do that. Do that now for the forgiveness of your sin. He'll forgive it, and he'll make you right before God. And you will be one of those people whose name is written in the book of life. And you will not have to flee at the judgment out of fear. Because in Jesus, you're viewed as clean and forgiven. So we've reached chapter 20. Death and Satan and Hades have all been thrown into the lake of fire. What conclusions do we draw? Well, I got these. Mark Matthewson helped me a ton. He's on staff at Lincoln Berean. And these are his conclusions. And I thought, I can't state it any better. So here we go. Number one, with the end of chapter 20, victory and vindication are finally won. And final judgment of evil is complete. That's what we're celebrating. Final judgment of evil is complete. Two, the faithful witness and patient endurance of the followers of Jesus has overcome the forces of evil. Your remaining faithful, my remaining faithful, is going to win in the end. It may not look like it, but that is what is going to play out. Number three, there's one thing remaining. I just talked about it. To follow the slain lamb, slain lamb to the reward, life with him forever in the new creation. That's the hope. That's where we're going with the book of Revelation. The slain lamb. He conquered by giving his life. We may be called to do that. But in the end, there is a reward for us in the new creation. Do I have any Husker fans, football fans here? Any of those? Anybody? Anybody? I got a few. Thank you. Thank you for that honesty. Do you remember the name Kenny Walker? Played 1990, was the conference player of the year, All-American defensive tackle. It's senior day. The seniors are honored because of the sacrifice they make as college athletes. They get up at 6 a.m. for treatment, and that's usually some kind of ice bath or something. Eight to noon, they're on their way to class. They eat lunch. They go to film and study, and then they go to practice, and they go eat dinner, and then they have to study. And it's, it's a life that's worth rewarding. Well, how much more for a player who was deaf? Kenny Walker was deaf. And so senior day comes, and you know, each senior's announced, and there's a round and a standing ovation for each player, but he, he's not going to be able to hear that. So the Omaha World Herald takes out an article and says, since he can't see that, what I want the fans to do is raise your hands, put your fingers wide, and go like this. So Kenny Walker described the feeling coming out. He can't hear, but he could feel vibrations that each player's announced. He, he, he feels a vibration. Well, he gets... The, the, the pat to go ahead and he goes out in the field and I can't feel any vibrations and he's confused and he looks up and he sees 90,000 people celebrating him here's my question if Kenny Walker is worth that kind of celebration what is Jesus worth how much do we honor him how much do we stand and in quotes applaud the one who purchased our salvation, the one who led us in victory, the one who showed us we conquer our enemies by dying for them, the one who makes it so when the final judgment comes and the great white throne judge, we don't have to join the masses in trying to run and hide and get away. But we can face that with confidence, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. We celebrate him. 
and we reign true because we're certain that he's going to reward the faithful and he's going to judge the wicked. We're going to move to a time of communion now. So if you're a person or a couple leading a table, if you would come up, I'd appreciate that. Uh, what we're doing is we're celebrating, we're memorializing Jesus. We don't be, believe this becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus, but this is a commemoration. We're remembering that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. You do not have to be a member of this church to partake in communion with us. We just ask that you be a follower of Jesus. If you're not sure what that means, feel free to be, remain seated. No need to be embarrassed. But uh, if you are, man, if you're a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to, to celebrate with us, to memorialize this one who purchased our salvation. Um, after I pray, if you come and gather around the table, these guys will lead you and uh, we'll remember Jesus together. Let me pray. So our God in heaven, we're grateful for Jesus, um, that he gave his life for us. Uh, we celebrate him, uh, much like 90,000 Husker fans celebrated Kenny Walker. Uh, we thank you that uh, victory is assured over evil because of who Jesus is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.